0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we're going to be talking with Sonia Gollins about her most recent publication, It Could Lead to Dancing, Mixed Sex Dancing, and Jewish Modernity. Sonia, welcome to the channel. Why don't you start by telling us all a little bit about yourself?
0: Thank you. So I'm lecturer in Yiddish at University College London, which in for um, American listeners that's basically assistant professor. I am a scholar of Yiddish studies and also German Jewish literature, and uh, I'm really interested in performance studies, in dance, and in theater. Uh, I, pro- taught previous, yeah, I taught previously at the University of Vienna, the Ohio State University, and at the University of Göttingen. And I'm the managing editor of Plotting Yiddish Drama, which is a project of the Digital Yiddish Theater Project to create a uh, database of English language plot synopses of Yiddish plays. And I um, Outside of my academic life, I'm also a Yiddish dance leader. So I um, teach Yiddish folk dance, so Ashkenazic folk dance at um, various festivals or venues and um, lead at sometimes at concerts.
1: That's awesome. I, it sounds like you are exceptionally busy. So I don't know when you had the time to write such an amazing uh, book. Um, And I'm guessing it is, you know, your interest in language and dance that might have led you to this text. Um, But I'm wondering if you could expand on that and share with us a little bit today about what led you to write could lead to Dancing.
0: So I've danced for most of my life. uh, And so in various types, um, starting with ballet when I was a kid. And so when I started learning Yiddish when I was in college, it just seemed natural that I would also learn the style of dance that was performed by the people whose language I was studying. Uh, And I started going to workshops at the time I was studying at the University of Chicago. And uh, Steve Weintraub was a Yiddish dance leader who was based in Chicago at the time, so I got to learn from him and go to other festivals. Uh, The year after I graduated from college, I spent in Germany at Heinrich Heine Universität Düsseldorf, and um, I was studying how Yiddish was taught at German universities, and near the end of that year, I went to a dance workshop at Yiddish Summer Weimar, Um, and Yiddish Summer Weimar is this really incredible program that's one of the I would say one of the best training grounds for different aspects of Yiddish culture, where you, for it goes on for um, for a number of weeks over the summer. And for a particular set of days or for a week, the, you have these really intense workshops of about six hours a day that are focused on honing a specific skill, maybe instrumental music maybe a certain type of singing, certain song repertoire. And um, they also have, well, prior to the pandemic, had dance workshops. So back in in 2010, I attended this dance workshop and I honed a number of skills that I had already been cultivating, but I also learned about a number of social dances, partner dances, that were also part of the Yiddish dance repertoire. And that got me really thinking about the, um, the way in which these couples dances or other, or like square dances that were maybe not performed just by women, um, because actually, if you look in some of the ethnographic materials, The set dances, the square dances, the partner dances that were performed in a gender segregated setting were um, generally part of the women's repertoire. But I was learning at this workshop that um, it wasn't necessarily um, always performed in a gender segregated setting, which is something that I... Kind of thought would have been the case based on the way that, that I was encountering people in other contexts just talking about there being a taboo on men and women dancing together. So this sort of this was sort of percolating this awareness that men and women did dance together. Meanwhile, I was um, I was starting graduate school the following year, and I had had this interest um, since undergrad, in, at, at the University of Chicago, in how young women were represented in modern Yiddish and Jewish literature and the ways in which moder- Jewish modernity could be portrayed as having a lot to do with how, with this, having a lot to do with the choices, the romantic choices that young women made. The most famous example of this is in Sholem Aleichem's. uh Tevye da Milchiga, Tevye the Dairyman stories, which were the inspiration for Fiddler on the Roof. And you see how um, these sisters each meet men who are not who their parents would necessarily want them to marry, who each are representative of some of the different social forces and changes that, um, that Jews were encountering during the 19th and 20th centuries. And I was very interested in how these women, these sheltered daughters were portrayed as the conduits for bringing this threatening change into the home and how it was framed in the context of these romantic plots. Um, So I was thinking about that, um, even from my first year of undergrad, and I wanted to learn more about this in graduate school. But then when I was Doing graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, I also I was also being kind of practical about um, what sorts of opportunities I might be able to apply for funding to do. And basically, I'd been doing these uh, dance workshops, and this was something that I really enjoyed and learned from, and it was a skill I was interested in cultivated. And it just occurred to me at some point that if what I was working on was dance, and at this point I had also written a Term paper for a class that was on a topic related to dance. So I was aware that dance was actually a subject that I could write about and it could be related to these questions of gender and modernity. And so I realized that if that was really what I focused on, if I was really writing about dance, then I could also apply for research funding to continue going to these dance workshops. And I thought that sounds like a fun use of my time and an interesting use of my time. And I decided to do that. And then I realized that actually this, um, this framework of dance and thinking about dance in connection with all these social changes related to modernity, all these issues of gender and the body and courtship, that this all actually fit together really nicely. And not only did it all fit together nicely, but it fit together in a way that people hadn't been thinking about it. Um, Even though to me, it was a way that really made sense that you had this taboo, this idea of men and women dancing being forbidden. Which this taboo of men and women dancing that actually gets used in for popular culture, um, in a lay context, in a non-academic context to talk about things that are forbidden by Jewish communities. And so there's this awareness of this taboo. So you have this idea of, um, of marriage plots being important ways of thinking about, about these changes. Um, you have the changes themselves that are going on, and you have also these changing ideas of courtship, of, of gender roles, um, these shifting notions of how, men and women should be interacting with each other. And um, all of these things fit together really well through the prism of dance. And so that was, that was what I wanted to talk about. Beautiful.
1: Um, you know, as a reader, I'm kind of a sucker for a, a well-written text and fun, interesting vignettes. And I think that this book really offers all of that in troves. I really personally enjoyed the introductory vignette to your text, which is, I think, where you derived the title from. And I would mind, I would wonder if you would mind kind of, um, you could either read it or just share that vignette with readers, listeners today, and let us know a little bit more about why you chose that metaphor to shape your narrative.
0: Thank you. Thank you for saying those nice things about my book. So... A young man who is about to get married goes to his rabbi to learn about marital intimacy. And um, his rabbi tells him about how to perform the mitzvah, the commandment of um, of sexual intercourse. And the young man is completely embarrassed. His face is red. He's barely able to like speak. Um, he's just so uncomfortable with this situation that is, of course, meant for um, his edification and to be of use to him. And then the rabbi um, looks at him and asks him if he has any questions. Well, he's completely red, um, and he can only stammer out uh, that um, he'd like to know if it's permissible to perform the mitzvah, the commandment, with the man on top. And the rabbi says, yes, yes, my son, this is a classic way of performing the mitzvah. You should be fruitful and multiply. Okay, the young man feels a little bit better. He's still quite pink um, and he's stammering a little bit, but he asks his next question. He asks if it's permissible to perform the mitzvah with the woman on top. Again, the rabbi is completely encouraging. He says, you know, this is this is completely kosher, and some people even prefer it, and you know, you should have lots of children. And so the the young man continues to ask questions about other sorts of configurations, and he, you know, gets more and more comfortable with each one, and with each question, the rabbi is similarly. Um, welcoming and open and says that it's all it's all okay. They, they, you know, they would all be good ways of fulfilling the mitzvah. So finally, the young man is like almost back to normal. He seems, you know, he's barely red in the face. He is speaking pretty fluently. And he asks the rabbi if it would be permissible to perform the mitzvah standing up. Absolutely not the Rabbi Bellows, it would lead to mixed dancing. So that's the joke. And that's how I start the book. And um, that's also how the title was derived. And the reason why I used it was, first of all, that was what people who already had heard the joke or different variations of it expected. And then my editor, wisely pointed out that if that was how we were going to get inspiration for the title then we would need to make sure that anyone who hadn't had the good fortune of hearing the joke before wouldn't be completely confused and so it would be a good idea to start the introduction with it which um I'm very happy that she gave me that suggestion and um We also had to massage the title a bit to not be exactly the punchline so that people who were expecting the punchline in the title would be uh, satisfied or mostly satisfied, but that people who hadn't heard of the joke wouldn't be completely confused. So that's why I don't have It Could Lead to Mixed Dancing as the main title of the book. Um, So the reason that this joke is so central, um, for this is because it points out the way that the taboo on mixed sex dancing has helped shape discussions of Jewish modernity. And I talk about in the introduction, well, first of all, that this joke isn't unique to Jews, to Jewish communities. Um, there, I've found variants for all kinds of other religious communities, including Baptists, and Mormons, um, Seventh-day Adventists, et cetera, et cetera. And, but, and, this, and the taboo on mixed dancing also isn't unique to Jews. You have Christian theologians like, um, like Martin Luther or Cotton Mather um, decrying this sort of practice. But some things that were interesting from the Jewish context, and one is the fact that, Still today, or when you look at communities today, that the phrase it could lead to dancing or it could lead to mixed dancing is just used as a way of signaling in a sort of joking way that the person speaking has a knowledge of what's forbidden in the community and there or in the community they happen to be in and that they're going to sort of lightly poke fun at some of these restrictions. So it's a way of showing insider status. But um, but it also, so, it, so this joke points to the way that the taboo on mixed sex dancing has helped shape discussions of Jewish modernity um, and how it's a jumping off point for thinking about why dancing is a particular concern in the context of the social changes that swept through Jewish communities in the long 19th century, which is what I talk about in my book.
1: Including this uh, this joke and other um, kind of cultural references, your corpus of sources is remarkable and compelling. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about your sources and how you came to encounter them?
0: Thank you both for these kind words. And also, I love this this question because it allows me to like talk about some of the sort of the process of the book that um, in a way that maybe isn't obvious in reading the book other than maybe the acknowledgements. Um, so first of all, I am to my knowledge, the first person to look at dance scenes in Jewish literature in this way. So I'm, I draw a lot upon this sort of emerging field of research known as Literary Dance Studies, which is focusing on these written literary descriptions of dance scenes and using them to talk about things like social mores or character development or plot development and how these sort of exciting dance scenes fit into these sorts of ideas. This is a direction of research um, that, as far as I can tell, is most highly developed in the study of 19th century British literature, which isn't so surprising because um, when you think about Jane Austen, for instance, there are a number of dance scenes in her novels and they have received quite a lot of attention. And so they loom large in these studies that use dance descriptions as a way of making broader points about whatever societies are relevant for these works of literature. Um, In a Jewish studies context, uh, descriptions of dance, whether in literary fiction or in memoirs or in travelogues, has mostly been used for ethnographic or historical research, not quite as much for um, the study of uh, literature, for literary analysis. There are exceptions, of course, but... um, but in terms of really focusing on these dance scenes as part of this literary discussion, I'm basically the first person to really have been approaching this or approaching this in a, um, in a way that involves sort of a comprehensive study, or it's hard to say comprehensive when there are just so many dance scenes out there, um, but to be looking at this as a main field a field of inquiry across a number of different chapters or um, articles. And so this basically means that, um, generally speaking, other people weren't collecting these scenes. And also they weren't necessarily paying attention to them in this sort of context. So just as an example, um, when I went to a particular archive, uh, a German so a German Jewish archive, and I wanted to look for dance, I did a search for the German word for dance, which is Tanz, uh, T-A-N-Z, and um, I got a lot of hits, and they were all four books that were published in the city of Konstanz, K-O-N-S-T-A-N-Z. Um similarly in indices they for books that often dance isn't mentioned. Um I needed to look for things like weddings or maybe um schools, education, courtship. And I'm like if I looked for terms like that, then there might be descriptions of weddings that had dancing in it or talks it or talking about how People learn to dance and as part of their uh, process of getting education. By getting an education um, or maybe talking about courtship activities. But most of these references were like very, very sort of marginal, um, where it's like I would be lucky in a social history to just get like a few names for dances or maybe a reference to how much a musician might be paid for playing particular songs. Uh, but it was, it was rarely um, so very detailed. Um, so one of the things that was really cool about looking at the literary texts was that they often provided a level of context about the sorts of dances that were performed and when and by whom that were not always obvious in the extant scholarship. So that was really rewarding. Um, So I looked in a lot of different sorts of sources. Um, I mean, first of all, I did, I read myself and there were things, there were scenes that I, that I noticed from my readings of um, both um, literary texts and also memoirs and other sorts of texts of that sort. I looked in ethnographic studies. I looked in literary studies, like to see maybe if, if there were discussions of you know, literary texts that involved courtship or weddings or things of that sort. I might get some sort of hint when I looked in literary studies that mentioned them that maybe there were dance scenes as well. And I was I learned how to predict when there might be dance scenes. So. There were wedding scenes. Um, Also a lot of popular literature that had erotic themes might have titillating dance scenes or works by writers who wrote local color fiction. They would often mention folk dances. So I could sort of tell um, what could be described almost as a genre of texts that had mixed dancing, where it was often works that were concerned about works of middlebrow or popular fiction that were concerned about uh, social change and had often had some sort of romantic plot. And these these sorts of works would often have dance scenes. And these dance scenes were often interesting. Um, They often came at moments that were really crucial for these texts. And they were used to uh, provide more information about characters and also how they might try to change their circumstances because they might think that at a dance where you had where people were drinking where people were eating good food where people were dressed up where there was music where people were coming into contact with people that they might not be introduced to by a matchmaker or by their families they might think that rules wouldn't apply so somebody who wanted to sort of Rebel, change what their circumstances, or don't does or people who didn't realize yet that they wanted to change those things. Um, in this sort of magical setting of a dance, they might start trying to think through these issues. Um, and if they act on them, if they sort of try and carry this magic moment, uh, the sorts of flirtations that they start on the dance floor, on after the music stops, then things could get quite complicated. Um, Basically, if you had a flirtation on the dance floor and you know that it's only possible during this moment of dancing um, and this special space of the dance, then, um, then people tend to be okay. But you often have some really tragic circumstances when you have people trying to continue these flirtations and maybe even try and continue these relationships into marriage. Um, to somebody that was not regarded as acceptable by families, after this moment of dancing, and um, and this is where you really get the strongest forms of social criticism, where you're showing that society is unable to support the, um, the kinds of interactions that were possible on the dance floor. So, like the dance floor is kind of like this utopian space and then the dancers have to create uh, have to confront the difficulty of reality where they aren't able to exist in the sort of utopian context um after the dancing and this this is where you get the the sorts of political commentary that can be quite interesting in thinking about modernity um so I like started noticing this sort of genre, I was predicting things, I was reading more. Um, and then I also asked around a lot. I would go to conferences and I would find senior scholars and I would just ask them, do you know of dance scenes? I'm writing about this. Can you think of other examples? I would arrange to have meetings with scholars who seem like they might know things that were relevant. And... Sometimes when I started talking to them, they might ask me, like, do you really have enough materials about mixed dancing to be able to write a whole dissertation about it? This was back when I was writing a dissertation. I was like, yes, I think I do. And we would keep talking. And then they would often just start thinking of examples and they would come up with one example and then they would come up with with another example and I would be writing furiously and like then they would realize oh actually I can think of quite a lot of things and um they would realize that this project had more potential than maybe was obvious at at the beginning um because this was something that they hadn't really necessarily thought of um before and it was extremely helpful to to get this this sort of um, feedback and suggestions. Um, And also friends would send me references. I mean, even now I have friends, um, friends will come across topics related to dance. I had a friend send me a Yiddish story uh, called Der Tanzmeister, The Dance Master, by Hannah Wiedemann, who published the story in, in Canada in the mid 20th century. And, um, so, and um, I actually decided to do a translation that will be published in jewishfiction.net. So, um, yeah, so it keeps happening and it's just, it's just so useful. People talk about the loneliness of the life of the mind of writing a dissertation of writing a book. And I, a lot of it is solitary and like sitting and, writing at a computer and confronting your own limitations as you're trying to um, refine all your words and find all of the best material to use and to craft the best possible writing that you can. It can be quite solitary. But then it's also incredible how much community you can have when you're researching something that might seem esoteric or might involve looking at things that haven't really been approached in that particular direction before, um, which is great for a project. And and then you have people who are willing to help you find things and then you can really make things um, rich and interdisciplinary. So I feel really fortunate that I was able to, to do that and to sort of bring together all of these resources. One of the people who was the most helpful, who I talked to at conferences, was our late colleague, uh, Jonathan Hess, who was an incredible scholar of German-Jewish studies, uh, who wrote the book on middle brow, 19th century German-Jewish literature. And he was somebody I was familiar with, um, but I didn't really know him so well. When I accosted him at a conference, um, I think it was the AJS conference, and I asked him if he could think of any dance scenes. And um, he was incredibly generous. Um, he was like probably the one person who was like, you know, I this is something I maybe I should have written about this or thought to write about this, but I'm going to go through my notes and send you a list and he did it Um, and I thought it was really generous that he actually was like making it seem like oh this this thing that I was writing is this sort of like graduate student maybe he should have thought about that too like that I had something there so that that sort of encouragement was so um, helpful and then he sent me this list he like went through his notes he searched for dance and he sent me this list of texts um, some of which were in his book, some of which were related to dance in his book, um, and some of which I just like wouldn't necessarily have thought to look at otherwise. And so I had this list that he wrote, and then for several years, I would just refer back to it and I would like look at these texts. and it was immensely helpful. Um, we We lost him a few years back, which is still incredibly uh, difficult for all the people that he was such a, um, an inspiration to in the field. And I'm just so grateful that um, in addition to his scholarship, that he was also such a wonderful human being and a mentor to, uh, to more junior scholars. And I'm, I feel really grateful that in some way that the work that I do in this book also helps, uh, carry on some of the things that, that he was doing in his, um, in his research. And, um, it's just like, I just find it really great to be able to build on some of this other scholarship in the field and people in the field who were so, um, so helpful both in their published research and also just how they were, as uh, as colleagues,
1: uh, thank you for sharing that with us, and may his memory be a blessing. I um I really enjoyed you sharing, mm-hmm. sharing with us how uh, how you went about your research process. I think it's uh, really important that those of us who have done this are are sharing this research process with younger scholars, um, as your mentors did and um, really helping develop paths for others to follow. I uh, want to dig now into kind of the nitty-gritty of your text um, and look at some of your major arguments. In the book, uh, you identify a shift in Jewish attitudes towards mixed-sex dancing from the late 18th to the 20th centuries. What is this shift? And can you tell us a little bit more about why it matters?
0: Thank you. mixed dancing, or as I call it in the book, mixed sex dancing, because there's like different types of mixing that could happen, um, different sorts of categories and, um, that, but I'm, I'm focusing on the, on the dancing between men and women. And also like, I mean, most of the writers that I discuss don't really make any sort of distinction between sex and gender the way that would be um, the way that we talk about it today. But when there is any sort of question, um, they seem to focus on the the bodies of the dancers. So, um, so I talk about mixed sex dancing. And so the style of dancing was technically forbidden in Jewish culture, um, even dating back to the time of the Talmud. It's not explicitly forbidden, but there's various, um, reasons why it's presented as forbidden. Um, there's various moments in Hebrew Bible, for instance, where you have people dancing and the dancing is, is separate. You don't have men and women dancing together. So there's a precedent for separate sex dancing. Um, you, you know, there are concerns about lasciviousness, about, um, a man touching a woman who is not a relative, um, various things that are like technically that, that are actually forbidden. And by extension, mixed dancing becomes forbidden. Um, and it was presented as dangerous in, you know, even going back to ancient times, um, but primarily because it could lead to sexual behavior within the Jewish community that might be seen as improper. Um, so, especially adultery. And, but when we get to the period that I'm discussing in my book, um, so like the long 19th century, the period between the Haskalah or Jewish Enlightenment and um, and the Holocaust, so between the late 18th and the sort of mid 20th centuries, there is a shift. And this shift is that mixed sex dancing gets framed as a threat to the Jewish community, but not because it's primarily identified with sexual misbehavior within the Jewish community, like adultery, um, but instead because it's a sign of outside values. That people who are engaging in this form of dancing are acting like their non Jewish neighbors. They're engaging in behavior that's seen as too modern, as rebellious, um, as not Jewish. So it's seen um, as a metaphor for acculturation and modernity more broadly, um, just this behavior that's being done on the dance floor. Um, and this is this is something that coincides with other phenomena as well that make mixed dancing a particularly compelling metaphor. Um, so one is that it coincides with the rise of intimate partner dances like the waltz across classes. So instead of having um, a dance like the minuet that is directed by a dance master that fits this like this very, um, you know, where you have a lot of space between the dancers comparatively and they're not necessarily determining all of the ways in which they're going to dance because there's a set choreography or there's someone indicating how they should dance. Instead, with um, when you have the waltz or the pol- the polka becoming popular, you get this, these dance fads that involve a man and a woman spinning together on an axis. They're able to like, they're in close contact. They have this centripetal motion that could make someone get dizzy and sort of need to lean on their partner even more strongly. Um, They have opportunities to speak intimately to each other. And there's a lot of concerns about these dances um, that that are outside the Jewish community that have nothing to do with the specific contexts that Jews are operating in, but they get this extra layer of significance within the Jewish community because this is seen as this um, this sort of outside influence. And then at the same time, you also get the growing popularity of companionate marriage, so um, love matches. And so that is connected very strongly with these dance practices because dance is such an important part of courtship in sort of European society in the 19th century, um, so maybe so you have pe- you have Jews no longer getting matched up by a matchmaker, um, where it's very much based on. The compatibility of the families and the way that everybody is going to be able to sort of do their part to um, to create Jewish families um, without as much focus on the emotional compatibility or physical attraction, but instead you have people going to dances and meeting partners there, and they're meeting them because they're holding each other and twirling around together and. You know, getting dizzy and out of breath together, and this creates this like really heady combination and this sort of new way of interacting that is the the source of quite a lot of fascination and concern. I also really
1: enjoyed your treatment of gender norms, dance, and the way that dance became a tool for women to push the boundaries of gender. Can you
0: tell listeners a little bit more about this phenomenon? Sure. So traditional Jewish society or Ashkenazic society was gender segregated. You had the ideal Jewish man um, was a, was a scholar of holy texts and would study Talmud in um, with, with other men. And a lot of the, The studies of sort of spaces of Jewish modernity, um, including spaces for physical Jewish modernity, often focus on activities that are still homosocial in um, in this way that still involve men interacting with other men, women interacting with other women, um, but it's largely focused on men and you know their Jewish men's participation in military service or um, or. Gymnastics clubs or things of that sort, sport uh, sporting clubs. Um, meanwhile, women were women were often involved with had their own spaces and they they had more um, traditionally since they were um, they weren't expected to be doing this sorts of scholarship. Um, if they had the money, they would often be getting really. They were getting secular educations they were learning modern languages they were um they were reading go to chiller and russian literature um, they might if they didn't have that that uh, if they didn't have that sort of uh financial stability they might be going going to markets um running groceries but a lot of the in their men and women were often in very separate spaces, traditionally speaking, um, which also meant that in literature, you also sometimes had a disconnect between the men and women that were getting married off together, where they didn't really know how to relate to each other. If you had a man who had been spending his time studying Talmud and a woman who had been spending her time reading um when writers and memoirists talk about activities that were seen as being modern, they often involved men and women mingling together um, in places such as salons, spas, universities, and cafes. Um, dancing was arguably the most popular of these activities across class lines. Um, people such as um, feminist, Zionist, radical uh, Pua Rokovsky. Talks explicitly about dancing classes being one of these sorts of places that would have been seen as forbidden um, when she was growing up, and that this is these were this was one of these spaces that was seen as being part of modernity and part of this change in sort of gender relations. Um, and also, if you look at some of the space, the places that have gotten more attention, like salons or spas or cafes, like they often involve dancing as well. So dancing was very popular. It was popular across class lines. It was something men and women did together. And um it allowed men and women to sort of test out their physical compatibility for marriage in the sort of intimate couple dances, doing the activity that was basically the closest to um you know, other sorts of physical intimacy that you could do in public in front of other people without being married. Um, I mean, not that they would be doing these other things in public after being married, um, either, but um they could also do these things without being married and sort of test out some of that compatibility. Um, so for men, masculinity on the dance floor involved giving women pleasure. And they followed rules of etiquette that were very much designed, um, at least in theory, to protect women from embarrassment and sort of look out for their well-being. And this is, um, you know, this is very different from the kinds of values that you get in a traditional Jewish context where, um, you know, where, Focusing on women's pleasure in these sorts of social interactions and like ideas of things like gallantry were not really the focus. Um, And so this is a, a different sort of way of focusing on or thinking about what masculinity could look like. It's not the sort of focus on men proving themselves to other men that you get in a sporting club or in the military. Instead, this is something that's very much about like showing what you can do for women um, and in this process of trying to get married and establish Jewish families. And for women, the dancing meant that they had this space they could be publicly visible in. They, um, they could dress up and then sort of show off and they could take up space quite literally on the dance floor But they also had the right to refuse a dance. Um, I mean, there were rules about that too. Um, If you if you refused to dance with one partner, then you were supposed to sit out the rest of the um, the rest of the song. um, To so it's not that so someone wouldn't take it personally, but there are rules about limiting those sorts of things. But there is this um, you, you know the man had to, the male dancing partner had to um ask for permission to do the dance and uh, to dance with with her and she could say no um so these these sorts of things um meant that that we can sort of think about we can think about um the ways in which dancing and physicality were um could or the physicality of courtship could sort of cast new light on what uh, the sorts of things that both men and women encountered that were sort of different from each other on the dance floor in the context of modernity. So, like in um, in my chapter on dance lessons, I talk about how there was a lot of anxiety, um, particularly in German literature, with whether Jewish men were capable of dancing. Um, and there, was, there were ideas that Jewish men were like hunched over Talmud volumes, so they didn't have good posture, and they weren't really able to properly please women on the dance floor because they weren't physically um, adept enough, and they couldn't just sort of manfully like you know go and partner her and sort of lead her through the steps. Um, but on the other hand, there was an assumption that Jewish women would be able to dance. Um, And this was tied, I mean, on one hand to the fact that a lot of times the dances that women performed in traditional contexts tended to be more similar to the partner dances that were performed by men and women together outside of these traditional contexts, um, or maybe more um, subversively within these traditional contexts, but you have um, dances like the share, which is sort of like a Jewish square dance, um, which was performed by women um, traditionally in a left context. It's more of a women's repertoire. Um, but there were sort of, and also like lancers um, and quadrilles would be performed by women more. But um, these were also these sorts of square shaped dances. Were also dances that would be performed at balls outside of these sorts of traditional wedding context. So, there. I mean, so on one hand, like women actually maybe did get more practice and training in the sorts of dances that they might dance with men in a different context. But also, there were um, sort of sexualized, gender-based stereotypes about Jewish women being exotic and sexually available and also vulnerable in 19th century European literature. And, um, and so this also plays into these ideas that Jewish women could dance because this was seen as enhancing her exotic appeal. If she's able to meet a, um, if she's able to meet a Christian, non-Jewish, if she's able to meet a Christian man um, at a ball and she dances with him. And you know you don't have to have the, the sort of sense of anxiety about can she dance, can she not dance? It's all about, is she sexually available to him? Is she not sexually available to him? Whereas um, discussions of Jewish men dancing are often more um, concerned with just the basic level of, is he able to execute these steps or not?
1: So I, I also um, really kind of enjoyed your treatment of different uh, social and political and cultural spaces. Uh, so for example, you address the tavern or the ball or the dance hall. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these three different spaces and how they kind of altered interactions between genders in, regard to, in regards to mixed sex dancing?
0: Thank you. So I think, um, so I have some of my chapters. So my book is basically organized in two sections, the first two chapters, sort of more cultural history. Um, and then I have four chapters that are organized around specific dance spaces. And when I think about these dance spaces, so the tavern, the ball, the wedding, the dance hall. Um, in some ways, I think about it sort of mirroring uh, the sort of stages of life because the, the the tavern is a space where there's a lot of concern about whether the Jewish family that runs the tavern, as was often the case in Central and Eastern Europe, whether they are able to properly educate their children in... Um, in Jewish subjects because the this often it was a rural community. There was maybe one Jewish family or not many Jewish families, and the children were growing up playing with peasant children that weren't Jewish. Um, and so they were learning their folk customs, they were speaking their language, um, and as they were growing up, they were dancing with them. And so this is um, this is a sort of concern in the tavern chapter. Um, so it's very much about Rural lower class behavior, um, and also the role of Jews as being kind of middlemen in this um, in this context, where they're running taverns um, for non-Jewish landowners, and then they're sort of selling um, you know they're basically they're selling um, liquor to the peasants who work the land. And so they're sort of in between. Um, And there's a lot of blurring of boundaries that happens in taverns because people are drinking and different classes are mixing there and different religions, ethnicities, and also men and women. And then this all sort of comes together um, in a very sort of clear physical way when it comes to dancing. I was talking about, so one of, the, one of the texts that I write about in this context is um, is a novella in Yiddish by uh, Leon Kobrin called um, Yankel Boila, which um, was also made into a play, which is a bit more famous than the novella. Um, but one of the things in this novella is, is there's this really great um, scene at um, this lower class um, sort of harvest festival Nikushka um, which is a um, it's basically like a harvest festival with games I mean it comes from the Russian word for games and they it involves people um, you know dancing together and there's, it's associated with courtship um, and this is a type of space which there is just very little almost, no, there was like very little information about in, um, in English. So I had to certainly like look around, ask people for a lot of information about it. And then I got to talk about it in the book, which also means that it's available in English. Um, and he performs, uh, this, this character Yanko Boyle is at this, um, you know, at this party essentially And he performs a dance called the uh, Kamavinskaya with a, with a peasant man. And like um, Yonkel is the son of a tavern keeper. He has been raised among peasants. He played with them as children. He was not interested in learning how to, um, you know, learning his prayers, learning how to read Hebrew texts. Um, He speaks Yiddish with a peasant accent. And when he gets older, he dances, and he's the best dancer in the community. And um, basically, the um, all the peasant women think he should just, like, they they admire him for his dancing skills, for his good looks, for the way he's dressed. And they basically think he should just, they, they don't think of him as Jewish. They think he should just convert to get baptized to remove the technicality of his background, and then they'd be happy to marry him. Whereas he's seen as sort of an outcast in the Jewish community because of his lack of education um, and because of the way he speaks. And there's a lot of concern that he is going to go and convert. Um, And he goes to this party and he's such a good dancer. And he, um, he gets into this like dance competition with a, um, with a peasant man um, in this, this style called a uh, kamarinskaya. And um, that involves some sort of just like dancing, um, using various, in, da- various sorts of like figures and configurations, but like dancing um, in sort of like this test of endurance almost. And, um, and they're sort of, at times, like sort of mocking each other as they're dancing. And this is done in front of uh, Natasha, um, who is the uncle Boyla's uh, love interest, um, who he doesn't feel he can marry because she's not Jewish. Um, and like, there's also like very little about the komarinskaya available in English. Um, so I was very fortunate that my friend, um, Michael Alpert, who um, happens to have a ethnographic, in a, a, um it was like a, Soviet-era Belarusian ethnographic encyclopedia, um, and he was willing to translate the Belarusian for me um, for the entries that were relevant for this. And so then I have this material, conversations with him and with others, uh, and I was able to incorporate it into the book. And so like this sort of information about a um, sort of rural um, Russian or like sort of Russian Empire type activities that wasn't really available in English, um, now can be part of the book. Um, and so that's that's the sort of thing that was really, that I thought was really um, interesting about the the tavern chapter, among other things. But um, some of the ways that the, the boundaries are blurred, the types of culture that's portrayed, that it's more of a lower class uh, context. Um, so that was all interesting to me. Um, and dance remains relevant at balls, even though balls are very, very different. They're often more urban. They are a higher class of participants. And um, and the two uh, the two types of ball that I really focus on in this um, in this book are the balls that are sort of majority non-Jewish, where there's maybe one or two Jews that are invited and. They, it, there's a lot of concern about whether they're included or if they're excluded, or if their acceptance is uh, conditional and sort of what are, what, is the, what is their ability to actually participate in this social space? And how does that differ if it's a man or a woman who is the one Jew at a ball? Um, and so that's one of the things that I explore in this chapter. And then on the other hand, you get balls that are majority Jewish and they still involve a certain amount of social inclusion or exclusion. So what does it mean if um, Christian men who are invited to a ball, are they more interesting as dance partners for Jewish women? And what does that mean? Um, I also talk about Zionist balls a bit. and. how they, this is part of some of the, the discussion of how to create a specifically Jewish national culture um, in connection with the Zionist movement and how, uh, or also to, to raise money or awareness um, for this sort of nationalist project. So those are, and, and balls are of course, very closely related to ideas of courtship, to notions that um, and the people that are admitted to balls who are supposed to be roughly marriageable um, or roughly the same sort of status so that if somebody meets at a, somebody else at a ball, that they're not going to um, be grossly incompatible um, from a social class um, basis. Um, they, they might be emotionally like terribly it, incompatible, like that's not really the question, but whether they're considered socially of like a similar enough in terms of their status. And, and, you know, they are also expected to follow rules about etiquette, about choreography. um, And that's all um, regulated to a greater extent than in the other spaces. Um, Weddings are a space where you, have a lot of um, where you have different sort of mixing, where you have communal leaders in attendance who might more quickly crack down on the taboo of mixed dancing. If there's transgressive dancing happening, they will see it, they will put an end to it, they will do whatever sorts of um, discipline uh, discipline is necessary. And um, there's discussions about this taboo explicitly at weddings in a way that there aren't as often in other social spaces. Um, I mean, they happen, but not quite as much. And I mean, and weddings are also a space where you have the meeting, you have two different families meeting, you might have guests from urban or rural neighborhoods that are you know coming together. So it's also that sort of mixing taking place. And then, um, and all those chapters are largely focused on works set in Europe, but in my final chapter, I talk about um, New York City and the um, and dance hall culture. I mean, there were dance, uh, there were other sorts of venues besides um, dance halls. You had saloons, for instance, or dancing academies, but it was all sort of wrapped up into this dance hall culture that was also connected to um, ideas of becoming American. Um, you have writers saying that like, part of becoming American is learning how to dance. Um, this was a very popular sort of activity. And um, during the, the period of the great wave of immigration to the United States from Eastern Europe, um, Jewish immigration, so between 1881 and 1924, you have a lot of young people who are coming who are not necessarily they're with their families, they don't have the same sort of communal pressure to behave a certain way, um, to remain traditionally religious. Um, you also have men coming um, and promising to bring over their, their wives and, um, and children, um, but they don't always, or they might delay, and they might also be intrigued by the, you know, by the temptations of this dance hall culture. And um, there was also a lot of connection with capitalism in terms of the way that dance halls were portrayed. There were concerns that it might re- lead to prostitution. This was a context where a lot of uh, a lot of these Jewish immigrants were working in the garment in- garment industry, and men tended to earn more and they had more disposable income, um, especially if they were there without families. Um, and uh, as, as and if women were coming with you know, with their parents and they were expected maybe to provide their, uh, their families with their income, um, men often, I mean for various reasons, including that they were paid more, they often had more disposable income and they could use that to treat women um, at these dances and they were expected to treat women at these dances. So they would you know maybe buy, buy her a soda or something like that. And that created this sort of um, situation in which he's providing her with these things and she might feel this pressure to reciprocate in some way. So there were concerns that um, this sort of flirtation, sexuality, dancing might also be commodified in this way that's related to this um, capitalist culture, this new social milieu in New York. And so all of this was um, tied in with these um, texts that, um, that depict the, the dance hall culture in New York.
1: So I've kind of stolen this question from the title of your epilogue, but uh, what exactly comes from all of this mixed-sex dancing?
0: The, this, um, the title in the epilogue, What Comes from Men and Women Dancing, comes from the American musical Fiddler on the Roof, which was based on uh, Sholem O'Lakim's Tevye the Derman stories. And um, this, you know, this musical, which is great fun to watch, it also plays very much into these ideas of um, dance being a taboo. Um, The political radical Perchik introduces mixed dancing, mixed sex dancing into the shtetl of Anatevka. And this is like the main way that we know that he's a radical. not, not, and it's because it's more entertaining than having him like explain all of his Marxist theories. So, um, in my epilogue, I talk about texts uh, texts from the late twentieth century to or to the um, or those are sort of mid late twentieth century. So, like starting with Fiddler on the Roof, including Dirty Dancing, and going into the twenty first century. Um, So these are texts that are often depicting um, pre-war Jewish communal life, but they were written post-war. And it's interesting to me because, um, well, for one thing, they allow happy endings. Uh, Dirty dancing ends with a great dance scene and a happy ending. Um, These are not works that are interested in policing borders in the same way. They're not... They aren't um, polemics talking about the evils of dancing. They can imagine um, good outcomes if a Jewish woman, as in dirty dancing, ends up in a relationship with a non-Jewish man. And I think part of this is because um, this is a post-Holocaust world and in which the, the, the authors are writing and the it's like once you are aware of that magnitude of destruction of the civilization like the um you can't i mean like what what is the point of policing those boundaries anymore because the like there's like a much more devastating violation of like Sort of like boundaries and communal standards of the existence of the community altogether. That's already been done, um, and also the people writing these texts are often—they're not—they didn't—they didn't grow up in that sort of milieu in the same way necessarily. So they might not. Um, so they might view things. They're they're viewing things somewhat differently they don't necessarily have the same sort of like deep knowledge but there is um there is this really interesting way in which they they do talk about dance where dance is often connected to female protagonists it's usually a female protagonist um exploring her own sexuality and um and like growing even through relationships that in pre-war literature might have seen as incapable of leaving leading to a happy ending. But here you have, um, works where it's, that isn't, um, th- those boundaries don't need to be policed where it is possible to have those sorts of relationships and have them not go horribly wrong. Um, one of the texts that I find really interesting is, um, if you've seen, the Australian mystery series Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. The there is a Jewish episode, Raisins and Almonds, and there's also a murder mystery, um, of Raisins and Almonds, a Franny Fisher mystery that it, that was the inspiration. But unlike the episode, um, the television show, the actual mystery novel starts out at a Jewish uh, club in Melbourne, Australia, where there is a foxtrot competition. And Franny Fisher, the protagonist who isn't Jewish, um, has met, uh, she had been um, looking for an exotic lover, which in this case was a, um, a Jewish man. And he dances the foxtrot like a dream. And the novel starts with them uh, dancing a foxtrot together at this Jewish club. Um, and then they're the best foxtrot dancers But then they don't win the um, they don't win the prize because they're not both members of this social club because um, one of them is not Jewish. Um, So they decide to it's decided that it would be better to award this prize to a couple where both are Jewish. Um, But one thing that's interesting in this novel, besides like the way that um, the dancing takes place in it, is that um, the relationship is, it's made very clear in the novel that Phryne expects um, her, her lover to end up with a Jewish woman, ultimately, and she only wants to have a short relationship with him, and she explains to his mother that she just wants to borrow him, and she knows that like later she he'll be with a, um, a Jewish woman um, for, you know, for a marital relationship. And, um, and then the mother's like, fine. And everyone's like, fine. And it's treated as like completely fine. And then they just, you know, have their romp and they solve the mis my- and she solves the mystery and, um, it's just presented as uncomplicated, even though these sorts of, um, issues of like in and out marriage, uh, are at least acknowledged. So, um, so yeah. Um, I mean, I think, it's really interesting that the works that are coming out more recently, and I talk about them, um, are, are thinking about the dancing in, um, in a different way. That's sort of less, less of a warning and more about seeing how these, um, how these sorts of motifs can help develop their characters. But like, Without this same um, these same sorts of source of tension or these same um, this sort of same sort of anxiety about uh, about the process of modernity, like it's sort of accepted that these that these values are here and here to stay. But how can we talk about the past when we have these values and we have this sort of sense of of openness and that it that actually it might be possible for a relationship. Um, that might not actually historically have been possible. Really, that we, if we sort of think, oh well, maybe maybe it would be something that could be um, okay. And so you have, um, I mean, even even in a even if you have something like the if you even if you have a source like the recent um, German American Netflix series um, Netflix mini series Unorthodox. It, it's still portraying a traditional Jewish community and in a way that shows that there's a, there's like a significant um, social critique being done, but you have a, and there's ambiguity at the end about what's going to happen. But part of the way that this um, woman, Esty, who has left a, an Orthodox community And a marriage that was not, um, where she was not physically satisfied, the opposite, and where she was not emotionally supported in the way that would have been helpful. Um, part of what helps her sort of explore her sexuality and sort of heal as it's depicted in this miniseries is because she goes out dancing with a non-Jewish friend in a Berlin club, and then they end up becoming physically intimate with each other, um, so this sort of idea that the dancing is related to sexual exploration is something that seems quite um, quite common in more recent texts that sort of thematize this Jewish mixed dancing.
1: Sonia, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, um, and, and thank you for taking the time. I did want to wrap up our interview with kind of the traditional closing question on new books in Jewish studies, and that's, what are you working on now? What comes next?
0: Thank you. So I'm. Um, my new work is inspired by the the work I've been doing with the Digital Yiddish Theater Project. Um, I'm, I'm editing their, their database, um, Plotting Yiddish Drama. When we were collecting, started collecting these synopses of Yiddish plays, I realized that almost none of them were written by women out of 250 plays on our wish list. Only two of the titles were written by one woman and I'm And I realized that that probably was not accurate, even if it was representative of the scholarship that existed at the time. And to my knowledge, there's only one art, one academic article that's been written about Yiddish women playwrights. So I decided that this was something I was going to work on changing for the database. And then I realized that this was something I wanted to think about more, work on in my own research. So right now I'm working on putting together a project on Yiddish women playwrights. And I'm also working on a translation of Teya Arteshevska's play uh, Miriamol, which, um, which is a work about... Um, basically how children respond to the Holocaust. It was written in the 1950s. She started it um, before the war um, to depict how children processed pogroms. Um, And then after after the Holocaust, it took on a different meaning and it involves um, folkloric elements, um, like children telling each other stories about Rebbies in order to console each other as they're living in hiding. Um, but it's also written as a modernist work and um, it involves uh, children playing games together um, that, uh, that are often um, a way of processing the sorts of trauma they're dealing with. And um, like the, t- the play, Miriam all takes its name from the protagonist who's an adolescent girl who's uh, described as having some sort of mental illness. And she becomes a sort of uh, mad prophetess character who scares the other children with um, the things she said, which are also Finn said in rhyme. And then by the end of the play, she leads the children from Warsaw to, she claims, to Jerusalem. So it's a really fascinating play. And I'm working on translating that, creating some sort of critical addition. And I'm hoping that it's something that could be used in Holocaust classes, especially since um, there aren't that many plays that, I mean, there are plays about the uh, about the Holocaust, but not so many that have really become um, works that are really taught in class, that are really so much part of the canon. And I'm hoping to create an edition that would be useful in schools in that way, and would also include an appendix um, of my translations of texts that were written about her, by her contemporaries, um, most of them male literary figures. And this would also enable people who maybe can't, like, go looking in archives in Yiddish, like students, to um, get a fuller sense of the reception of a um, a woman who was involved in Yiddish cultural production. So that's... That's what I'm working on now, the sort of translation and um, and also developing a larger monograph um, that's related to um, plays by women.
1: Both of those sound amazing, and I'm looking forward to reading those. Um, thank you for taking the time to join us on new books in Jewish studies, Sonia. And I also uh, just want to remind readers that you can pick up a copy of Sonia. Gollins. It could lead to dancing, mixed sex dancing, and Jewish modernity. Uh, any place where you can buy books,
0: including uh,
1: the press website for Stanford University Press.
0: Thank you.